Good afternoon. Thanks for joining me. Today is August 21st. And if you're here, it's to talk about the importance of risk transfer in New York workers' compensation cases. Uh, my goal today is to try to demystify a little bit of this topic uh, and to bring it out and answer any questions that you might have about risk transfer in New York. So uh, let's dive in. Let's take a look at what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about what risk transfer is, what kind of cases qualify for risk transfer opportunity, um, how you get your maximum reimbursement. I'm going to give a little bit of advice based on my experience, and I'm going to talk about how risk transfer impacts uh, our cases. I'll talk a little bit about some common examples that we see. Um, I do want to demystify the difference between reimbursement rights and subrogation rights, and it's a little tricky because sometimes um, even our clients, they don't have a reimbursement um, or risk transfer department. They have a subrogation department. Uh, but actually subrogation is a small part of what we're doing and risk transfer um, in general, usually reimbursement, a much bigger part of how we're uh, saving client money and reducing exposure in cases. So thanks for coming in today. Uh, I hope your summer vacation is going great. Hope you're enjoying it. Um, thanks for spending your afternoon with me. My goal here is to make this as useful for you as possible. So. Uh, there is absolutely an opportunity here for you to ask questions. It's why you came live, right? Uh, please type your questions into the question box that is here, over here. Let me try to get lined up with it. Um, and as they are popping up, I will. I can see that they're um, coming into that question box. And then at the end, I will try to answer as many of your questions as I can. I always uh, tell people, hey, if you're thinking to yourself, I'm not going to ask that question. It's too simple or silly. Please ask it because uh, most people are watching this uh, or listening to this presentation um, either in a video playback or in a podcast um, format, and they can't ask questions. So when you ask that question that was you know hope that somebody out there else out there wanted to ask, uh, it's so useful for them. So please go ahead, ask that question. It's why I'm here. It's why we like to do this live. It makes it so much more fun for me as the presenter uh, when I get to answer your questions live and try to get to the bottom of some of these uh, obstacles that we have. So let's dive in. Is there a potential action is our first case, our first circumstance. And when we're thinking about our New, Jer our New York workers' compensation cases, we should be thinking to ourselves like, wait, is there a potential for risk transfer in this matter? Is there somebody else who hurt my employee? Is there someone else who harmed them? Um, is and, and there are so many um, common scenarios where we're going to get this opportunity for risk transfer. Uh, most motor vehicle accidents are going to involve more than just our vehicle, more than just our employee. There's going to be some other party out there. Great opportunity for some risk transfer for a potential action against an actual tortfeasor. Um, how about slip and falls that occur not on our property? Well, it's really uh, a potential for an action against whoever owned or maintained or had the duty to maintain that property in a uh, you know a, a condition that was not going to lead to someone having a fall. Another example uh, would be a products liability case. Our employee was injured because of a piece of defective tool or machinery that harmed them or was not properly guarded in some way. Uh, that's another example of an opportunity for us to potentially get some risk transfer. And even in more attenuated circumstances too. I mean. Think about a circumstance like, uh, for example, the employee who gets injured at work, and at the at the time of the accident, there is no potential for risk transfer. There is no potential for us to get reimbursement. But during the course of the case, they go and get medical care, and perhaps they were the victim of a medical error, medical malpractice, 
uh, which led to them being harmed. Uh, so in that circumstance, at the time of the initial accident, there was no potential for risk transfer, but once our employee is uh, injured by medical malpractice, then they would have a cause of action against their medical provider, which means we would have that derivative reimbursement right, and if they don't bring that cause of action, we would have a subrogation right. So always be thinking, I mean, and, and particularly don't um, just think at the beginning of the case, oh, no potential for risk transfer, we're not looking into this. So think to yourself, is there an actual tortfeasor? Um, did they file a lawsuit already against someone? You know, it could be founded, unfounded, but did they file a lawsuit? Is there uh, an easy opportunity for us to get some reimbursement? Did someone else's negligence, and even professional negligence counts, uh, lead to our employee's injury? Uh, and, and think about the timing of that. So the, the sequence of considering risk transfer opportunities should never be just the beginning of the case. It should really be as that case is developing and taking a look at, hey, is there a potential for us to get uh, some reimbursement back from someone else who harmed this employee? Now, what's our right to reimbursement? And I want to explain reimbursement versus subrogation. I'm going to talk about subrogation in the next little segment. I really want to spend time thinking about reimbursement first because it's the most common way that we obtain risk transfer in a case. And it's the most practical and easiest and cheapest for us because we're not out there actively pursuing the claim for them. Our right to reimbursement flows from Section 29 of the Workers' Compensation Law in New York, and that section is allegedly self-executing, meaning you don't have to do anything in particular to preserve your right to reimbursement in a New York workers' compensation case. That means there is no specific form that you have to file or specific deadlines that you have to be mindful of. Uh, that's probably the only time I can say that in New York workers' compensation law, that you don't have a specific crazy board form you have to file and some gotcha deadline. Uh, Section 29 is considered to be self-executing, and what that just means is it affects every case, and whether you file a Section 29 notice or not in your workers' compensation case, you're going to be entitled to reimbursement under the statute. How do you preserve that right? Well, again, at the time of intake, we're going to remind you, hey, we think you have a right to reimbursement here. Look, they filed a civil action. Our clients are really savvy, and a lot of them are looking into that already on their own. I always try to serve a Section 29 notice on all parties in the workers' compensation action and try to identify who the parties are in the civil action so I can put them on notice and let them know, hey, uh, when you're ready to settle that civil action, my client is due their reimbursement. So you can't go and settle around us. You need our consent, and that's the power that we have in a New York workers' compensation case. When they want to go settle their third party or their action over, whatever you want to call it, they have to come to us and obtain our consent to that settlement. So it is self-executing, but we really do think um, putting everyone on notice and then spending the time to actually monitor that civil case so you know where it is going and how it's progressing uh, so that you can utilize that sometimes to help you know when to settle your workers' comp case, right? Because one of your opportunities here, and don't neglect this opportunity, is potentially to waive reimbursement. Right? There's nothing wrong with saying, hey, we're waiving reimbursement in the, from our, our Section 29 rights as uh, furtherance of obtaining a full dismissal here under Section 32 in our New York workers' compensation case. Like That's absolutely something that you can do. But again, you're going to want to be thinking about the timing of that so you can get that global settlement done at the same time. New York's got a great civil docketing system um, that's all electronic. Um, and it, anyone can access it. I think there's a sign up, but it's very straightforward. And their docketing system in their civil courts 
uh, relatively easy to navigate. You can follow along. You can even see the pleadings that have been filed in that civil action. So that's very useful for you in protecting that reimbursement of opportunity. And also uh, getting your maximum reimbursement, right? Because any settlement ledger or any settlement um, uh, schedules that are going to be filed in that civil action, that's going to be your basis or your that's going to help you determine, hey, uh, here's the award, here's the judgment, here was the settlement or the dismissal they obtained in the civil action. Now you know exactly what your reimbursement right is in terms of dollars and cents in the workers' compensation case. So very useful for us in terms of getting uh, our maximum amount of money back. Now you're Let's, let's transition to the next question, which is how much money do I actually get back, right? What is my reimbursement right in New York? Well, it's very powerful. Under Section 29, if the claimant is receives an award which is greater than the amount that we have paid in the workers' compensation context, you get everything back, less attorney's fees and cost of suit. Very straightforward, very simple. So everything that you've paid, you get back. Uh, where this third-party award is less than what we've made, paid, we get back everything we've already paid up until the amount of the uh, third-party award or settlement. And, of course, we would then also get a future credit for any money we have to pay in the future, but there's no money to come and reimburse us, so that's too bad. Uh, those are the circumstances, by the way, you want to be extra vigilant. Like, why did the claimant take such a low settlement in that civil action? Like, did they not have really good theory of negligence? Was there some comparative, some contributory? Was there some other problem with the case? Oftentimes it's, did they even get the right experts? Did they do the right things? Did they accept a, uh, a settlement that's just too darn low? Uh, was the amount of insurance in play just not enough to compensate us? Like, what's going on there? That's Those are the cases you're really going to want to look into. And finally, um, there is a potential for our recovery to be reduced further. Uh, where the future benefit is understood or, or, or very clear. So uh, there's a case law that's called Burns that says our lien gets reduced by any future benefits that are future avoided. So that's something to be thoughtful of as well. And that's a Burns calculation is relatively straightforward to do. How do we maximize reimbursement? I've already talked a little bit about some of our strategies for doing that. But one of the pieces of advice I'll give clients and I give, I'll give to you is please wait for the offer in the third party before we start negotiating dollars and cents. I've had so many cases where the claimant's attorney in the civil action uh, or the action over is trying to negotiate or settle our reimbursement amount or cram us down, push us down, reduce us, ask us to compromise. They haven't even got an offer to settle in the civil action. And they'll often couch it in these weird terms. They'll be like, well, you know, uh, my guy needs a million dollars to settle. I think I could get that, but only if you reduce your, or you compromise your amount down to X. What? So you tell me you don't even have an offer yet. You're trying to formulate a demand and you're going to formulate a demand about how much you have to reimburse me? No. Go see what the most amount of money you can get. Come back to me and then we'll figure that out. I mean, uh, that's uh, one of those circumstances where you don't want to negotiate against yourself. You don't want to negotiate against a phantom offer that doesn't actually exist. Uh, be very mindful and wary about this. I think I can get. I think they'll go for it. I already got an offer of this, but I think they'll do this. You're being played there because they have more information than what they're sharing with you. Don't trust them as far as you can throw them. Or wait for that offer. Ask for to see it in writing or ask to participate in that settlement discussion. That's fine. Second thing I see is where the claimant's attorney will say, look, 
I've got an offer of $100,000 in the civil action, but I'm going to abandon that unless you reduce or you cram down or you uh, waive a portion of your reimbursement amount because my guy, and they always say that, my, my client wants to or needs to get $100,000 and for that to happen, you have to reduce what your reimbursable amount is. What? No. Uh, you're never going to abandon this good case because you're going to get an attorney's fee out of this. So I know you're not going to do that. Two, you have an ethical duty to your client. That ethical duty is to recover any amounts of money that you can get for them. Uh, it's not to cram me down. So I know you're not going to abandon your case. Three, I've been at this for 22 years. I don't think I've ever seen a claims attorney actually abandon a viable uh, civil action in which they could get an attorney's fee on. I just have never seen that. So I think those are completely fake or false um, threats that you're receiving. Finally, and probably the most common one, I saved it for last, is the demand that we reduce our reimbursement amount to a third. And they'll say something like, hey, it's always in New York. We always do a third, a third, a third. And they'll listen, like try to trick you, and they'll say stuff like, well, I've been at this 100 years, and for 100 years, we've always done a third, a third, a third. A third for the claimant, you reduce yearly in a third, and then a third for me, and that's fair. And, da, da, da. and they'll, they'll speak as if it's like a done deal, but that's not true. There is no case law, there is no law, there's no regulation, there's no rule, there's nothing in the state of New York which says that when you have a third-party reimbursement right under Section 29, you have to reduce it to a third so that the claimant can get something. Absolutely not. The law does not say that the claimant's entitled to double recovery. It just doesn't say that. Uh, and that's not the intent of the law. And there's no case law that says that. So you never have to accept a compromise position when you are due reimbursement from the proceeds of a third-party civil action. So that's probably the first and most important takeaway I can give you. The next thing I want to talk about is when the claimant is getting a very lowball offer in a case and you can't kind of understand why, or they seem like they're jumping at low offers, and that's not good for us, right? I, in this instance, I actually want the claimant to get the highest offer they can possibly get. That's actually in my interest. I want them to get the largest possible civil settlement they can get because some of that money is coming back to me and maybe all of it is coming back to me uh, to reimburse us. So in this instance, this is a limited instance, my interests are actually aligned with the plaintiff getting the most money possible and recovering the highest possible amount. So in those circumstances, I'm going to become an ally. I'm going to become the best friend that claimant's attorney ever got. And if I look at their case and I say, look, you got a low offer. I think this is too low. We're not going to consent to it. I think your demand should be higher. I think you should receive higher. And here's what I think you need to do to put your case into a winning posture. I'll even go so far as to recommend an expert to them, give them some advice about how they could shape their case up so they can get more money. And that's okay, right? Because in this instance, we're actually aligned with the claimant. And we actually are hoping that they go out and, and get some uh, good recovery against that third-party tortfeasor. That's in our interest. So we will actually help them and assist them in that one limited circumstance. All right. Let's move from reimbursement, which is easy, and we love reimbursement, right, because we're not spending a lot of money on it. We don't have to actively prosecute the claim. We're just really monitoring it. We are providing limited assistance to our adversary. We're really just communicating and making sure that we maximize our reimbursement. Let's talk about subrogation. Subrogation is a completely different aspect of Section 29's lien rights. Yes, you can subrogate in this jurisdiction, absolutely. But we have the same rights and unfortunately the same limitations that the plaintiffs does 
in a subrogated action. What does subrogation mean? Well, the word is a Latin term, uh, comes from a Latin root, I should say, and that root means to stand in the shoes of another. So when we're subrogating a case in New York, we are defending a workers' compensation claim, or we're liable for a workers' compensation claim, in which the claimant also has a viable civil action against an actual tortfeasor. But for whatever reason, they've decided not to bring the civil action. Maybe they're ignorant. They just don't know they have a civil action. Uh, maybe they don't want to for some personal reason, like the party that harmed them is their brother-in-law or one of their customers, and they just don't want to go after them. Uh, you know, there could be a lot of good reasons and maybe not some good reasons uh, if they don't want to be involved in a civil lawsuit. But for whatever reason, they choose not to pursue this. That doesn't mean we can't pursue it on their behalf. And the reason we would pursue it on their behalf is because we would be entitled to at least a portion of that recovery. And if we're subrogating, we're entitled to all of the recovery we obtain. Okay, And so uh, that's why we would want to pursue it. Now, we would have the same rights they do in bringing that claim. It's like we're standing in the shoes. We are becoming the plaintiff. We'd also have the same limitations. And for example, the same limitation on the amount of time we have to file that claim. The statute of limitations for a bodily injury civil action in New York is three years. doesn't matter if the claimant brings the case themselves directly or we stand in their shoes and become the plaintiff and file the case for them. We still have that same limitation. So just be mindful. We don't get special discovery or disclosure rules or anything like that. We get to stand in the shoes of the of the claimant and bring that civil action in on their behalf, uh, but we don't get any um, special uh, relaxation of any rules uh, or special entitlements. We have to uh, abide by the same limits that they would have. Now, what can we subrogate? Well, basically any claim against any actual tortfeasor, just like uh, that the same right that the claimant would have against those parties. Um, we can subrogate, for example, a medical malpractice claim medical malpractice that occurred during the course of authorized and provided medical treatment relating to that compensable workers' compensation case. We would still have the right to subrogate that. Uh, we can seek re uh, recovery from other employers, from other uh, responsible parties, and obtain money that way. How do we subrogate? Well, this is where we actually have some rules that we have to follow. Unlike um, Section 29 in regards to reimbursement, which is relatively self-executing, and for subrogation, we actually have to serve a notice. We cannot file an action on behalf of the claimant unless we've given them 30 days of notice. So we have to send them a certified mail letter saying, hey, we're gonna, if you don't bring this workers' comp, or, sorry, if you don't bring this civil action, we're gonna step into your shoes and we're gonna bring it for you. So we have to do that, we have to provide them that notice. And we also cannot bring that action unless one year has elapsed from either the date of loss or six months after the last payment of compensation. And the third limitation is that when I send them that notice letter and tell them, hi, I'm gonna step into your shoes and bring this claim, I have to include special warning language. And that warning language uh, indicates to them that, hi, I'm stepping into your shoes and I'm filing this claim on your behalf, but you need to know I'm not actually going to be pursuing the maximum amount of money I possibly can. I'm only going to be seeking the amount of money that compensates or reimburses my client, the employer or carrier in the workers' compensation case. Again, if we've only spent a million dollars in the workers' compensation case, that's the only amount that I am going to be pursuing in this subrogated action. So even if you were entitled to $10 million in pain and suffering, I'm not going to be seeking that $10 million. I'm only going to be seeking the $1 million that my client would be entitled to. Well, I'll tell you what. That's a great warning to put in there because that really incentivizes the claimant to go out 
go to the market, hire their own attorney on contingency, right? And have them go and pursue the claim themselves. In other words, it pushes them to go and file their own claim against the actual tortfeasor and saves us the time and expense of having to have your defense counsel or counsel on retainer uh, go and pursue that action as the um, subrogure of the claimant. What are the limits to subrogation? Well, we can't uh, subrogate against first-party benefits. What's a first-party benefit? Any benefit that the claimant, for example, pays for for themselves. So if they have their own, for example, life insurance policy and they die, I can't uh, subrogate against the proceeds of their own life insurance policy. I also can't subrogate against their own uninsured or underinsured motorist benefits because, again, those are first-party benefits. And under section, uh, insurance law section 5105, I have some limitations on what I can do in regards to motor vehicle uh, first-party benefits that I can't subrogate against. Um, again, we have that time wait period that we have to wait for. We have to give them a year and then 30 days. Now, there you can actually short-circuit that and um, pursue subrogation before a year has elapsed. If the claimant affirmatively waives their right to bring their own claim in writing to you, uh, that's extremely rare, but it is possible. And I just wanted to bring out that you can do that if you want to. Problems with subrogation. Well, there's a lot of problems with subrogation. And you could think of them as practical problems and ethical problems. The practical problems are, in one context, I'm your workers' compensation defense attorney, and I am defending this case in a workers' compensation forum. But then I have to step into another forum and bring a case in which I am actually standing in the shoes of the claimant, and I need their cooperation with that. They are not typically that cooperative with us uh, in this context. Um, they're usually confused. I don't understand this. I thought you were my adversary, but now you're representing me. How is this working? So you've got a lot of cooperation issues. There are also ethical issues for defense counsel. And the ethical issues are, A, uh, I am in one context telling the court this person's uh, injuries are not significant. They're not due money benefits, perhaps, or perhaps I'm diminishing the value of their claim the best I can. And then in another context, another court, another venue, I'm claiming that they aren't very harmed and they are entitled to enormous amounts of recovery. So those are two different things. That's just uncomfortable and hard to do. Uh, the other ethical issues that arise, for example, are the fact that I have a split um, uh, obligation. My fiduciary obligation is to my client, who I'm subrogating on behalf of, and I am only attempting to recover enough money to cover their losses. I am not seeking the maximum amount of money for the claimant, right? I have to be upfront about that with the claimant, uh, but this is you know, very confusing for them and can lead to ethical concerns. And the last thing is where the claimant is unrepresented in the workers' compensation context. So a pretty high percentage of claimants choose to be unrepresented in the workers' compensation context, usually because their injuries are minor or small, or they think they're sophisticated enough to maneuver themselves through the system, maybe they have experience. But when they're unrepresented in the workers' comp context, and then in the civil context, I'm stepping in and becoming their attorney for them. It's very confusing for them, and this can lead to some significant issues, particularly surrounding communication. So those are some of the problems with subrogation. But the good news is that when we do subrogate, most of the time, when we communicate with our uh, claimant uh, or adversary counsel, we say, look, you're not going to bring this case. We think it's viable. We're going to bring it for you. Most of the time, they go to the market. They retain their own attorney, and they bring that case themselves which again, saves us our time, blood, and treasure, lets that attorney go do what they do best and work on contingency, and then we get our reimbursement rights. So we can maneuver these subrogation matters into a reimbursement context, which is just easier and more efficient for us.
All right, it's just some takeaways for you to uh, take away, and I'm going to turn to questions next. So if you haven't typed your question in yet, please type it in now. Some takeaways are one, there is no such thing as a one-third, one-third, one-third split that doesn't exist, that's made up. That's just something attorneys say. They're just negotiating with you. That doesn't exist. There is no rule. They can never point to the rule if you ever ask them to. Uh, so don't ever let them bluff you into a third, a third, a third. Uh, number two, when you're thinking about how much reimbursement you should receive or want to receive, take into account the, re the litigation risk that's facing in that case. You know, in the case where they have got weak proofs or there isn't a great theory of causation uh, or they don't have great witnesses, and maybe we know that, and we're getting an asked or being requested to compromise or reduce our overall reimbursement demand, maybe that makes sense in that context. When we don't think their case is that strong, we think it's a little bit weak. Also, you know, never forget about that global settlement. Hey, can I waive as part of my reimbursement or my entire reimbursement for a section 32 in the workers' compensation case? That's a great and useful way of utilizing your reimbursement right to reduce exposure and get a case to close. Um, finally, my opinion is that we should always be issuing notices early about our reimbursement requests and be thinking about risk transfer as these cases develop so we don't miss any opportunities for risk transfer. All right, I hope this was helpful to everyone. I'm going to turn over now to some live question and answer. I hope I've got some good questions in here. Let me open up the panel and see what I got. Okay. Okay. Suzanne says, Greg, can you recap the difference between risk transfer, reimbursement, and subrogation? Yes, I can, okay? Because I feel like this is a confusing aspect of it for people, like the lingo that surrounds it, okay? Risk transfer is just the big term. It's like uh, the chapter heading on what we're talking about, right? Risk transfer just means, hey, my risk is being transferred to somebody else, all right? That's all it means. That's, and when I say in that context, that's not its own separate thing. It's just a big way of describing the circumstance where someone else is going to step in and pay you money uh, back that you've already had to expend in your workers' compensation context. That's all risk transfer means, okay? It's the big, the big subject that we're talking about today. And then when you think about the two methods or the mechanical ways that money actually flows back to you, the first one's reimbursement. And I say the first one uh, just because it's simple and it's the easiest one. You are due reimbursement from the proceeds of any civil action in New York pursuant to Section 29. If the claimant goes out and files a lawsuit, a separate lawsuit from the workers' compensation case, and recovers money from any party, you, the workers' compensation carrier, are entitled to reimbursement from that money by law. In fact, you're entitled to everything they get minus attorney's fees and costs of suit. So, that, so reimbursement's easy. It operates by way of law. Uh, they cannot settle a case without getting your specific consent to it, a civil action. They cannot settle it. So really, that's a really great and powerful uh, reimbursement right that you have in New York. But what about circumstances where the claimant chooses not, for whatever reason, they choose not to go and file their own civil action? Under the Section 29 in New York, under our law, you can go and file a suit under, and, and in their name to go and recover that money yourself. You don't have to wait. That's subrogation. So they're really two halves of the same coin. It's the same right. It's the same amount of money coming back to you. Direct reimbursement where the claimants filed their own suit is just a lot simpler and easier. Subrogation means we actually have to jump through some hoops and might have to litigate a little bit, but we can do it. We can step into their shoes and bring a claim where they themselves refuse to do it. So I hope that clarifies things for you. And that really is a 
a good question because it kind of brings everything back together at the very end here. So thanks for asking that, um, Suzanne. All right, I'm hoping there's some more questions. Let me flip through here. Uh, any other questions? I don't see any. All right, I guess I guess we're good. Listen, everyone, I hope you have a great last few weeks of the summer. We know summer's over here now uh, when we see back-to-school ads on TV, and I just saw a Spirit of Halloween store pop up across the street on the highway from us. So I know it is, it's, uh, it's heading into fall, but I hope you enjoy the last few weeks of the summer as we close this year out. Okay, everyone, have a great day, and I'll see you next time.